Okay, and we're back. Another uh, Allied Action podcast. Uh, today on the podcast, we're very excited to have uh, Lou Schomer. Uh, Lou has become a friend of ours, a mentor of ours, a little bit of an advisor as well. Uh, Lou has dedicated his life to equality and inclusion um, through his time with SISO and with his, uh, with his own company, Shomex Productions, uh, serving as the president and CEO since 1984. Um, I would sit here and read his whole bio, but it would take the incredible work that he's done over the last 20 years or so has just been fantastic and feel honored to have Lou here today to share a little bit of insight about what he's done in the past, what he's doing now, and potentially what are some of the solutions for the future and how we can all be better. So uh, with that being said, Lou, thank you so much for, for joining us today. And, and Courtney, again, uh, my wonderful co-host for today, we're excited to kind of dive in and have a conversation and we know it's probably going to be a little bit of a heavy conversation, but uh, regardless, to, to dive in and just learn more and, and uh, excited to have you. So here we go. Hey, Lou. Hi, Courtney. How are you? I'm uh, doing great for an old man. <laughs> Stop it. Thank you for being here so much. We, Matt and I, when we were, goodness, we spoke to you now, I think a month or so ago, maybe almost two months ago. And I remember getting off that phone call, me and Matt were like, wow, when we start recording this podcast, Lou has to be a guest. Um, we felt like you took us to school and, you know, Allied to Action is the name of our, is the name of our organization. And if um, you are anything, it is action. Um, and you are somebody who puts that action back into the word ally, which is, you know, what we're all about. Um, and really to, to Matt's point, like talking about how we can be better and, um, I know you and I met in Florida. It was I, at least my first trip past pandemic. Was it yours? My first trip, yeah. Um, at the CISO conference. And I was speaking on a panel to represent Ally to Action. And I remember um, they kind of, you know, we, we did our thing and then we opened up the floor for, for questions. And you were the first one up and you were the first one to the mic. And you were so enthusiastic about this space. And I was just enamored and taken back. And like, what, what made you get up so quick and go to that mic and share that story with us? Well, I, I think as your name implies, it's action. And I hear a lot of lip service because I've been in advocacy for a hundred years now. Um, and as a matter of fact, one of the panelists was Eva Sedke, who I met with last week in New York. Um, he and I are on the board of advisors of a trade show executive um, for diversity, inclusion, and equity. Um, and they put the board together maybe three months ago, four months ago. Uh, and, and, and I wrote to Gabby Weiss and I said, when are we gonna do something? So it, it's all about the action. And uh, I was impressed with what you had done with, with Reed. Um, because what I've always found is that um, I, I don't like the words diversity and inclusion. I've used them in, in my, my life and, and I don't like them because inclusion means exclusion and, and I don't like that. Um, diversity means everything. Diversity in, in, in today's world usually indicates either a gender, uh, a gender preference or a color of skin. Um, and diversity is more than that. And I always use this as an example. There's a restaurant, which is um, one of the top restaurants in the world. It's called the Fat Duck in Bray in uh, the United Kingdom near Maidenhead. 
and Bray is a village about the size of my office. Um, and they have two three-star Michelin restaurants in Bray, one of which is owned by Heston Blumenthal. And Heston Blumenthal's restaurant, which there's four mortgage payments to get a dinner. However, when you go in there, regardless of the language that you speak, there's a server there that speaks your language. And when you look at the, the chefs that he brings in, he brings in chefs from all over the world, Australia, Africa, South America, Europe, uh, the United States. And when those chefs come to work for him, they bring culture, they bring recipes, they bring what their mother used to cook. That's diversity. Because now he's creating a product which has elements of the entire globe. That's diversity. It's not necessarily gender. It's not necessarily color of skin. It's everything. And that's diversity. And the thing that I like to, to talk about is equity, because everybody from the underserved communities wants equal access. And the key is giving people equal access. And I don't care what you call it, but equal access means that you've got to go in and you've got to resource people from, from underserved communities and you have to give them equal access to the same jobs and opportunities as everybody else. And that's non-gender specific. It's non-color of skin specific. Um, it, it, it's not whether you're overweight or underweight or any other weight. It's all about giving somebody equal access to the same opportunities that everybody else has. And, and that's why I think the equity is the most important word of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Thank you. Yeah, I, 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 when you said inclusion means exclusion, that's the first time I've heard someone say that. That was, um, I'm going to not say inclusion ever again, I think, like just from that. But it does. But you're right. And I, there's, um, I work with a, a few amazing people and um, one of my clients name is John Gray uh, of Ghetto Gastro. And he introduced me to a new kind of way that he started kind of talking about things is, which is we're underestimated group of people, not an underrepresented group of people, but we are an underestimated, historically underestimated, right? Um, to your point, there's no reason why uh, outside of the access uh, for the equality. Um, I thought that that was a really another way to say that. Um, you, mentioned, you mentioned equity and access. Um, can you help tell you know our audience, I know Matt and I know this, but a bit of your story and your why as to how you got into you know these spaces um, because it, it, I, I remember such a great story and and then you know um, yeah I think we'll start there. Well, um, it actually goes back to my college well, actually my 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 high school days. I I, I went to a prep school in Connecticut called Cheshire Academy. And while I was at Cheshire Academy, this is in 1952 to 1955, so a little bit before you guys were born. Um, and I was with people from all over the world because Cheshire attracted, and it was all male at the time. Now it's, uh, it's, it's co-ed, which I would have preferred, but it's timing is everything. Um, and we had people from Africa, South America, uh, Sri Lanka, 
um, Australia, um, and, and colors of skin, um, different languages. And, and that was pretty avant-garde in 1952 and 1955. It was, you know, before the civil rights movement in the 60s. Um, and from there, I went to Ohio Wesleyan, and where 98% of the people belong to a sorority or fraternity. And I joined a fraternity, which was the only interracial fraternity in the country at the time. And the fraternity was started uh, by Korean veterans who were coming back from the war, who had served with people of different color and different backgrounds. And they said, well, if we could fight next to people and they would give their lives to, for me or I would give my life for them, why couldn't we have a fraternity that uh, embraced everybody? And they started this fraternity. And I was a member- fraternity was it, Lou? It was called, it was called Beta Sigma Tau. Um, and we had about six chapters throughout the United States. Um, but we, we embraced everybody. And, and I remember we had fraternity meetings, and this is in Delaware, Ohio. Delaware, Ohio was kind of a conservative, conservative all-white Christian area. Um, and I remember having fraternity meetings and having a cross burned on the lawn during our fraternity meeting. That was kind of scary. Um, and, and we'd go to a restaurant in the town. Um, and, and I've talked about this with, with the current CEO, president of the school, Ohio Wesleyan. And at the time we went to a coffee shop and we would go in with, with my fraternity brothers, two of which were black and, and myself and another fraternity brother. And on the way, we'd all chip in to pay the bill. And last one of us who had the money would go out and pay the bill. And the guy would say, you know, I'd really prefer that you wouldn't bring these colored guys in next time. And I said, well, how do you feel about Jews? He said, well, I don't like them either. But, you know, at least you can't tell as much with that. And my friend and I, at one o'clock in the morning, went in and threw a brick through his window because we didn't like that. What we also did was there was a barber in town and the barber wouldn't cut African-Americans hair, no barber. So we took a collection and we raised $2,000 so that one of those barbers could set up shop and he would take African-Americans, he would take everybody. And we supported him to be successful. So my advocacy goes back quite a way. And then um, I graduated, I went to grad school and I went in the army, da 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 So that's really my background as to how I got into advocacy. Well, I'll, thank you for sharing that and thank you for your service. Um, career fairs, why and how did you get into them? I mean, talking about, I mean, I know there's like a big chunk of life there that we just like, over. Um, but, you know, again, it seems like every decision you've made in your at least professional career by way of what me and Matt know is rooted in advocacy. Um, well, would that be correct in like assuming or saying? Uh, so, some of it. Um, I moved to London in 1977, um, where I met my wife. And um, we moved back to the States 
1976. So I was in London for about 10 years. Um, and then I joined the computer industry um, working for a company called Pertech. And Pertech made, uh, and, and when I was living in London, um, actually I started with IBM in New York and, and then I moved to London and I was in the computer leasing business. So that had nothing to do with my advocacy. Um, and then when I came back to the United States, um, I was selling peripheral equipment and um, at, at some point, Sheldon Adelson, you know who Sheldon Adelson was? Sheldon Adelson was a huge donor to the Republican Party. He also owned Las Vegas Sands, the Venetian, the Palazzo, half of Macau, Singapore. I think he was the 25th richest man in the world. He died in January. Um, oh, I know and, who he is now that you say that. Yeah. And, yeah. And, yep, yep, yep. And, and other, other than his, his political beliefs, um, he was a really interesting person, terrible person that somebody had to do business with because he was very difficult to do business with. But I mean, he was a loving uh, person. He, 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 was, he was just a, a family person, um, brilliant. And I went to, to work for him. And then I worked for him for two years. Um, he fired me, tried to hire me back four times. But while I was in Boston, um, I saw all of these job fairs. And I said, boy, they're terrible. They're disorganized. People are all over the place. It's a terrible way to run a trade show. So I decided that I would do job fairs. So I originally got into the job fair business by being, uh, by being in the technical end, uh, computers and technology. And many of our customers were um, um, Contractors. So, and the contractors, this is in the um, 80s. Uh, the contractors had all of these affirmative action programs that they needed. And they came to us and they said, you know, Lou, you're the new kid on the block because there were other people doing job fairs. And they said, but you seem to know what you're doing. And our biggest problem is we can't find a black female MIT PhD. <laughs> Can you find it for me? <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's how we originally got into affirmative action, which in those days, affirmative action. And in 1990, we actually did the first ADA, just after ADA, we did the first ADA job fair in Long Beach. And it was a disaster. <laughs> the employers didn't have a clue what accommodation meant. Um, We'd have blind people come in with service animals and all everybody wanted to do was to pet the animals. Uh, my wife would go around with the people and, and we, I remember going to one employer and uh, the employer says, well, you know, we don't have any jobs for people who can't see. And the person who was there said, well, I've been a customer service rep for the last five years. And when I go on my computer, even though I can't see, the computer talks to me so I can do customer service and I can talk to people. They didn't have a clue. So that, that was really annoying to me. But that was my first um, encounter with, again, an underserved community. Mm -hmm. And we became the largest diversity career fair company in the country until 2008. Um, we were setting up in Madison Square Garden on 9-11. 
which again was a disaster. Um, and, and we worked with the NAACP for 20 years. I sat on the board of the NAACP for 20 years. And 9-11 um, was basically the end of our business because we thought that um, after 9-11, the business would come back. Well, after 9-11, the internet came in and that was the end of personal interviewing. Everything was done online as it is today. Nobody wants to talk to you. All they want to do is make sure that you've got your resume online. So if, if you can hold on a second, I'll see if I can get rid of the light. <laughs> he is ordained. You are ordained, Lou. How's your train doing, Matt? I'm good. It was so loud for a hot second. <laughs> Lou, he has a train that goes by. My, my office is, uh, I love my little office, but I'm right by railroad tracks. And it, oh. like, it just depends on the day and the train goes by and it sounds like it's like in my office. So um, my, my first job in uh, when I came back and, 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 and before I joined Sheldon, I was with a modem company in uh, San Fernando Valley right by a railroad tra uh, track. And I'm interviewing for the job and all of a sudden the train goes by. And I said, is that an earthquake? <laughs> that's, what it, that's what it feels like. My whole thing shakes, wild. Hey, I, I did want to jump back because I had a question or more of maybe an observation and then a question. You talked about access to opportunity. And I think there's been a huge disconnect from a society standpoint between access to opportunity and equality of outcome. And I would love your thoughts on that because I think it is very much so incredibly important to create access and opportunity for people. But as that's created, where does the responsibility maybe take a back seat or where does it step forward in regards to the outcome of the situation? Because as you know, you've spent a lifetime building companies and, and operating from the standpoint of trying to create diversity and inclusion. But as you do that, where does that, where does it stop or where does it halt or, or where do you start judging on the outcome of some of these opportunities that are gained from equal access? I'm going to tell you two stories. Perfect. The first one is um, when we started doing diversity job fairs, diversity career fairs, and um, we would bring in Asian Americans, we'd bring in Hispanic Americans, we'd bring in women who had post um, uh, graduate degrees. And in those days, the biggest thing were clearances, um, secret, top secret, SBI, poly. That was it because we were working with all these government contracts. So these people would come in and one of the employers came to me and said, let me tell you what affirmative action is. Affirmative action is I wanna see dark people because you can observe them as being other. That's one story. So to them, affirmative action meant black. It didn't mean women, it didn't mean Asian, it didn't mean anything other than I've got to show people 
And therefore, if I have somebody who looks black, I've done my affirmative action. It checks, that, it checks that box. And, and that, was the, that was the reason behind the question, because as the president of Allied Action and looking at where we've come from when, when Courtney first came up with the idea of Allied Action and where we're at now, there are definitely still people that are very proactive in trying to do their part. But there's also a big chunk of people that are kind of going on to the next thing. We kind of checked this box. We did what we needed to do. And now it, it's on to the next thing. Lip service. Exactly. And that's where I, that's where the question stems from because I just kind of go, oh, cool. So you hired a couple people that you think you should hire or you put a couple influencers on your social media page that aren't your typical people. And, and now you feel good about it. And it's on to the next thing. It's on to the election. It's on to pro-vax, no-vax, whatever it may be, right? And I just go, that is the problem. Is now, that, how do we fix, how do we fix it rather than give lip service? Now I'm going to tell you the second story. Perfect. I'll shut up. <laughs> so the, the most aggressive and efficient um, employer we ever saw was the aerospace company, which, which is a sort of private government um, company that, that, again, is a general government contractor. So they go out, and, and, and another company um, that we worked with was in Edwards Air Force Base, China Lake. You know where that is, right? So there, <laughs> up near Lancaster, Mojave Desert. So we had this recruiter who became a very good friend of mine. And he said, let me tell you what happens. I go to Morehouse or I go to any of the historically black colleges and universities and I'm recruiting and I'm recruiting graduates with 3.3 averages as opposed to 4.0 averages. But that doesn't mean that they're not gonna be able to do the job. They come up to China Lake, they're black. And they're doing heavy recruiting, trying to get them. And the recruit comes in and he says, um, where are the other black families? There are none. So here's a young recruit. He's uh, 24, 23 years old. He graduated. He's got a master's degree. Why is he going to live in China Lake when he's out looking to go to parties and find a mate? Because there are no mates like him in China Lake. So one of the biggest things that people don't understand is that if you're going to go out and you're going to resource people from underserved communities or underestimated communities or whatever you want to call them, if you can't bring them into an environment in which they feel comfortable, they're not going to stay. And you're not therefore offering them equal access because there is no equal access. There's nobody that looks like them. It's exactly the same thing in the disability community. And one of the things we always hear from, from our ability shows is when somebody comes in the door and they're in a wheelchair and whether it's CP or whether they've had a spinal cord injury or TBI, whatever it is, they come in and they look around and they say, wow, there's more people who look like me than look like the general universe that I'm used to. So they become comfortable. They can enjoy themselves because they're 
amongst people who are like them. So it's not just resourcing, but you've got to create and give people an environment in which they can have equal access and in which they can excel. And that has to be with people who look like them. And that's the biggest mistake that companies make is, well, I'm just going to go out and I'm going to hire five black people, or I'm going to hire five Hispanics, or I'm going to hire five women, or I'm going to hire five transgenders. And, and that was my, that's my point, right? I've had so many conversations with, you know, DNI hires that literally got hired in, in response to George Floyd or, or, you know, the circumstances of the last two years, they've been hired within these companies, whether it's big companies or small companies. And the majority of their situations are companies going, hey, here's our problem. Here you go. Let us know when you've got it figured out and when we can hire some people. And it's infuriating to watch that because, like you said, and, and like Courtney and I have talked about so much, I hate the word ally. Like to me, like I, it just, it's been overused and it just, there's really never any, any bite. Big bark, no bite. And that's I like it. to say overused and underutilized. I was trying to remember it. And I couldn't remember what you I said. You, I got you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I was like struggling with it in my mind. I, I was like, oh, he's got it. Yeah, he's got yeah, it. yeah. Punted <laughs> on third down. Um, anyways, so I, I just I'm, I'm frustrated from that standpoint because I feel like there there's still an incredible amount of momentum and obviously an incredible problem and issue that needs to be resolved for us. I think as humanity to move forward. And so for somebody like you that has been in this space and has been in this fight in, in a multitude of areas, how, how do we take the next step? How do we get into a situation to where companies are, are, are looking at things the way that you happen to be looking at it going, how do we create environments for people to strive and create environments for everybody, regardless of what you look like, regardless of male, female, trans, whatever it may be, how do we create these inclusive environments so that we're not bringing somebody, you know, to Edwards Air Force Base and there's not a single soul that looks like them? So it's, I think it starts with intention, but it's almost like chicken and the egg. It's like you got it, one has to drop before the other. And so how do you, how do you navigate that space as a, as a owner, as a, as a member of society that's trying to go, okay, how do we, how do we move, move the ball forward? Well, you know, you have to start somewhere. So, so the company has the, the CEO, not the company, the CEO. Top down, so important, right, Lou? Has to start at the top. And, and it's not, you know, I've walked into so many lobbies of large companies and here's this equal opportunity pledge by the CEO and it doesn't mean crap. So the CEO has to have an action plan and they have to go out and they have to go out and find somebody who's willing to take a chance with them so that they can go out and they can create an environment or an atmosphere where it's going to be pleasing for other people to join it. And as Willie Sutton said, you know who Willie Sutton is, was, was? I don't. I'll, I'll jump on. No. <laughs> Willie, Willie Sutton is the foremost bank robber in the United States in the 30s, 20s, 30s. And he finally got caught. I mean, he was doing this forever. And then he finally got caught. I'm gonna, 
and quickly were, Google's Willie Sutton. Oh no, I guarantee there's a book and I'm gonna read it tonight. <laughs> and, and so they were interviewing Sutton after his trial and he was convicted because he had robbed so many banks. And he says, and they said, well, Mr. Sutton, you're, you're such a bright person and, 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 and why do you rob banks? And he said, well, that's where the money is. <laughs> so it's the same thing. You go and you find people where they are, but you've got to bring them into an environment which is going to be comfortable for them. And the only way you can do that is to start by bringing some people in and saying, look, you may be the only African-American in my company right now, but you've got to work with me and you've got to help me go out and find your replacement because you're going to be promoted. And when you're promoted, I need somebody to take your place. And you have to help me do this because right now I'm not doing it. So the CEO has to make that commitment and then follow through and make it happen. And, you know, I, I, I see all of these names of, of uh, the, the director of inclusion and this and the vice president of that. And I don't know what those people do. And, and the NAACP just announced a, a hiring of a director of race and, and, and political strategy. I don't know what that person does. No, it, you know what's even to, to add to that? I've had so many conversations with people that have been recently hired and put into those positions. They don't even know what they're supposed to do. Right. And that is the fundamental problem, right? It's a hire to check a box, not to solve any problems. It's, hey, we don't want any heat. We don't want any bad PR. So, hey, we're going we're gonna to do this so that we don't. And then as the world turns and we move on to, to the next problem or the next tragedy or whatever it may be, then it's just kind of like onto the next thing. And so I think it's- it, it, We it, struggle it, with it. It, it is, it, it's a problem that I go, I don't know how to fix that because people are being put into these diversity and inclusion positions and they're being set, it's, they're set up to fail. That's and because without infrastructure, and Courtney, you've said this from the very, very beginning, and I've learned it. I've, I've had these conversations, and, and Lou, you've already touched on it many times. It's got to be from the top down, and it has to be authentic, because if it's not, you're just going to experience what I'm experiencing with a lot of these people. They're going, hey, I don't even think this is going to be a, a position that's paid for two or three years from now. It might just be on to the next thing. Yeah, they, they, the CEO has to make it happen. And, and, and obviously, we're talking about larger companies. I, I mean, in a small company, you, you know, basically, you, you've got fewer employees, so you've got to make sure that whatever you're doing, you're finding the best people. But, but you know, you go out and look for the best people. And, and the best people can be in a different location than you think they are. And, and, and especially now, especially in the trade show industry, um, because of the pandemic, uh, people like GES and Freeman um, have lost so many people. They had to lay off so many people because for a year and a half, they weren't doing any shows. And they had these huge payrolls and they had to let, they furloughed people, they let people go. And now when they need them because trade shows are coming back, they, they're not finding them, they're not coming back to work. So, 
they're going to have to go out and find people who aren't necessarily coming out of the trade show industry. But they have a skill set that can be used in the trade show industry. So that's diversity. And, and that doesn't mean whether they're, they're gender specific or color of skin or anything like that. They need people who are going to do the job. So you go out and you recruit them. And where do you find them? You go out and you find them from other areas where the skill sets are similar, but they're not the same. Yeah. I, I, so I think we're all in agreement in regards to like, okay, in theory, this is, is, this is the direction to go. Obviously, a lot of people, a lot of companies, society, we've missed that mark. We haven't paid attention to it. It hasn't been something in the forefront. And now that it is, looking at the problem as a whole and trying to identify these people, uh, regardless of whatever it may be, how much, how much of a role does our education system play in the long-term effects of diversity and inclusion? Because if you look at our education system right now, it's in shambles. And so what is the direction? Because it's got to start there in my mind. It, it starts with the education of, hey, we're, we're all a lot more alike than we are similar. And then how that spawns and goes as those young people grow and whatnot. That's a really good question, Matt. And you know, people talk about racism, whether it's racism or whatever it is, it's a negative set against somebody. Um, and that all starts from two things, lack of education and fear. And the fear is because you don't understand the culture, you don't understand what that person's background is, you fear them. So fear and lack of education are the two reasons why we have racism. And then that, that turns into aggression. And that's why you've got all of the problems of, of, a, of a Rodney King or, 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 or Minnesota. Um, so George Floyd. So again, it, 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 it's, that's got to be eliminated. And the way you eliminate that is through education. So it really starts absolutely at the ground level of education. Now, I can't change the education system. I'd like to think I could, but I, I can't. I mean, even today, you, we, oh, we, we're talking about vaccines. Now, there's a lot of parents that don't want to have their kids vaccinated. Um, and there are a lot of parents who say, yeah, I want my kid vaccinated because if I send my kid to school, I don't want my kid to come home with COVID and give it to me. And then I'm going to give it to my parents and they're going to die. Yeah. So, so, and that's a similar type of thing. It's, it's fear, lack of education. These all sort of come together at some point, but it, it's all education and it starts from day one. How are you going to educate your kids? And I'm going to take that kind of one further because I, it really hit me hard because it's not complicated, right, Lou? You just, it's fear and lack of education. And I think that's what was so difficult um, over the past couple of years is you had, you had generations of people having to unlearn things, right? Or come to the realization that maybe they weren't taught the whole history of the United States of America, or, you know, like the whole understanding of, you know, Tulsa as an example, you know, things that have happened in our history that weren't in our history books, right? And, and so when, when, when you find out 
information that you didn't know before, it challenges your reality, which is, is, is um, it's the word I'm looking for, Matt. Uncomfortable. Um, that's the word. Because which is uncomfortable. And so like we yeah. get to the root, that's why we wanted to help get people to the root of that issue. So they wouldn't feel the fear and they would feel more confident having conversations like this, you know? You know, it's, it, it, Courtney, it's very difficult to untrain somebody. I know. You know. We're finding that out. <laughs> that, that's very difficult because people, you know, they grow up in a certain environment, a certain, used to certain things. That's the way they, they, they are. I mean, Cuomo, you know, with all of his problems in New York State, there's no question in my mind that he was touching women. I guess the question is intent. You know, it's like Joe Biden kissing somebody on the head. I mean, that happened. Now, the woman whom, who he did it with may have been very offended, but she couldn't say anything because he was a senator, whatever it was. And he probably, because she didn't say anything, he that didn't think there was anything wrong with it because that's everybody did that. That You know, that's Mad, uh, Mad Men in, in the, the television series. And that happened. And that was my generation in the 50s. I mean, Women got out of college and they were secretaries. They weren't lawyers. They weren't doctors. They were secretaries. So, so that has that can't be unlearned. Mm. You can teach somebody that it's wrong. <laughs> There's a difference. You, you, you can't unteach, but you can teach, and that's very important. I think that. It's incredibly important, and you hit the nail on the head in that regard, too. And I think the thing that gets us into trouble is we've turned into this society of we just speak in generality, right? We, we, we have these giant brushstrokes, and we go, oh, you got to do this, right? And it's like, a, I always look at it like defund the police, right? There's actually some things within that thought process that are brilliant and that are absolutely needed. But naming it defund the police and broad stroking it like this, what it does is it triggers people that didn't grow up that way, that have a unique perspective. And that perspective is being questioned. It's being drawn out. It's being highlighted and all those things that can make you uncomfortable, right? But how do we get to a place of, and this is, you know, layered, but we have to allow people to make mistakes yeah. own up for those mistakes let them adjust their course and we have to let those people then be able to flourish but this yeah. idea that we're going to condemn people for operating a certain way like like you said the madman example was perfect back during that time that was the reality it, it, it wasn't they weren't being discriminated against maybe particularly in the moment but an opportunity to be a secretary for an executive that was a fantastic job so I don't want to discount that aspect of it. But when you look at it in today's day and age with the perspectives that we all have, obviously you can look at that circumstance and go, there's some room for improvement to say the least. But if we don't allow our leaders and these people in positions of power to be able to go, yep, <laughs> we punted on third down on that one. But now we, we understand what our problem was. Now we've adjusted our course and this is the new direction. If we don't allow leaders to be able to learn from experiences, we're never going to get anywhere because at this point, it just seems like we're pointing fingers at each other and nothing gets accomplished that way. Emerald's done something very interesting. And, and 
when I was talking to Abbey, I forgot to ask him the question. But what Emerald's done is they said, why do we have to hire college graduates? That's been the status quo, right? So, so well, it was always, you have to hire a college graduate. Well, well that eliminates a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And, and, and regardless of, of, of skin tone or, or, or gender, it just it's eliminates- It's a class issue at that point, yeah. yeah. So, so, and there are reasons people don't finish college, you know, or, or start college. Uh, finance is cer- certainly the most important, uh, but the second is maybe they're not ready for college. Maybe, maybe they don't want the responsibility of college, but they have life experiences and those life experiences can be used. So um, in, in, in Emerald's um, hiring, they now say, okay, you don't need a college education. Now, the question I was gonna ask Eve was, when you leave your job, is the board of directors going to be able to hire somebody who doesn't have a college education? Hmm. That, that's such an interesting question. Courtney kind of knows this, but I've got a group of young people that I've mentored over the last 10 years or so. And this is an ongoing conversation that we have. The, the Do I go to college? Do I not go to college? Do I'm an entrepreneur? I tell people not to get their master's. Well, I mean, I, to go even deeper than that, I think there's absolutely, look, we're not throwing college out. We get that. It's a huge step in the right direction for many people. And it provides a huge step in opportunity, right? But that path to success where for my generation, I kind of, maybe Courtney, you too, that last generation of being able to go, oh, I, I went to college, I have a college degree, that's going to get me a good job or get me in the door. That doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Now, um, yeah. to your point, he leaves that CEO, that chairman of the board position. I don't think we're in a position yet to where a company of that size would be willing to put a CEO in place that doesn't have a college education. I, no. I, I don't know the answer to that. But, you know, Gates and Zuckerberg have done pretty well, and they've only had a year of college. Well, look, I mean, at, look at all the young people in the last 10 years that have carved out incredible livings that didn't exist five years ago. Well, access to information, right? I mean, talking about your job fair industry, trade show industry going away after September 11th because of the internet, right? I mean, the access to information for self-education and self-enlightenment um, has true, you know, I remember so fondly, you know, my dad and my mom had the Encyclopedia Britannica in the, in the office, right? My dad's office. I've got all it in my pockets. <laughs> you know, all of them. And we get the updated ones, you know, and we'd switch them out. And, you know, when I was doing my reports or I would pull them down and I would look and I would source. And that was knowledge. That wall of books was it, you know? And getting those books is expensive, right? Having access to a oh, library it took is five years right they were not cheap you know and that was a privilege to have and even like having access to get to a library or get a library card like those things I remember I cherished moments where I got to go to places where there was knowledge to be consumed but I also was in a very privileged environment where I knew my parents knew that I should do that and that I could do that I the 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 beauty and maybe you know there's always a, a pro and a con of the internet and the democratization of information, you know, accessibility 
is that there isn't as many barriers to entry to learn things, right? And so- um, well, well, that, that, That's good news and bad news, Corey. Right, oh. <laughs> because misinformation- <laughs> Yeah. All, all of the things. Uh, obviously, Zuckerberg is having a bit of a problem <laughs> with that right now. It's been a tough week. Uh, and, and that's the problem is, is that information the right information or is everybody believing what they read rather than looking at the source and then looking at alternative things that, that, that describe the same type of events and, and people are lazy. So they look at the internet and they look at Facebook or they look at social media and they say, that's the gospel rather than opening up and saying, gee, maybe there's another version of this that I need to be looking at. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's good news, bad news, the information. And there, but there's also, when I think about trade industries like um, tech or, you know, you can Google, how do I work in Microsoft Excel? And you'll get tons of YouTube videos on how to learn how to use things that you used to have to pay a lot of money to go to school to learn how to use yep. or to gain access to that software. So, you know, I am so happy to hear, and I know Matt, you're in this space, like that there is this openness to start to hire folks that do not have a college education or even a high school, you know, just like if you can do the job, great, right? And, um, or create their own path and whatever that may be, um, you know, entertainment or education or otherwise. Um, getting back to kind of like, advocacy and how we can take information and share it to be better for each other, Lou. I mean, that's kind of why we're here. We're here to have this conversation with you so people can can leave going, wow, I didn't, that was really informational for me. Or they could go to our website and grab a resource or watch a movie or, you know, engage in some of these podcasts. Um, what have you found to help you in your journey in advocacy that you would like give people as a, hey, I would, this help me and, and maybe it could help you in terms of your own journey of learning. Well, well you, you, you have to practice what you preach. You have to be involved. Um, when I was with the NAACP um, and people would say, oh yeah, some of my best friends are Jews and some of my best friends are African-Americans. And the first question is, um, have you ever been to the house for dinner? Have you ever had them to your house for dinner? Have you had any black people or Hispanic people sleep over at your house? How involved are you with what you purport to want to do? Mm. So it, and it goes back to what Matt said is actions. You know, you are what your actions are, not what you say necessarily. And that, that's, how it happens. That's, that's how you understand culture. You don't do it on your own by reading. You have to be involved. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and I could sit here and talk to you, Lou, for three more hours and, and, uh, and just soak up the stories and, you know, we can do that another time. I want to be respectful of our time today, but, um, I want to just, you know, thank you in general for not only the work that you've done 
um, recently, but throughout your career, I mean, I, I, I'm really interested also, and maybe this is our last um, question before we get into like the fun fast five questions, but you've mentioned it a few times, almost as a throwaway in our conversations <laughs> that you were on the board of the NAACP for 20 years. Um, we could probably do a whole other podcast on just that experience. Um, we don't have time today, but can you help us understand how you got involved, why, and why, you know, what you saw change over 20 years? Um, and that might be a really loaded question. So just be like, take well, a little that, bit of it. But It's an interesting question. And, and when I was in New York last week, um, just before I saw Eric, I got to spend three hours with one of the vice presidents with the NAA because their offices were just down the street. Um, and I got involved with the NAA because when we started doing diversity career fairs, or, or I guess we called them originally affirmative action career fairs, we felt that we had to have a partnership with the NAA because that was the most recognizable agency. Uh, and it was an umbrella agency. Uh, we tried to work with La Raza, we tried to work with LULAC, um, and they didn't want any part of us, uh, which was, I, I didn't understand it, but they didn't. Um, we work with the Society of Women Engineers because, again, we were trying to resource engineers. Um, now, at the Aerospace Corporation, they had, and, and, and they put aside money to have all of those organizations in-house. So they really catered to people who wanted to belong with their group, even though they were part of a larger group. And, and, and the NAA has changed significantly. At one point, it looked like the NAACP was going to lose its relevance until the pandemic. And, and Derek Johnson has really stepped up. He's been extremely uh, vocal um, just after George Floyd. Um, he's, he's been um, in the news. And, 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 and the NAACP uh, now, Paula told me that it's the best year that they've had in a long, long time. So their relevance is back again. Now, they have to stay relevant. Everybody has to stay relevant. And they are still the largest umbrella organization for a, um, a underserved community. Um, and they have programs that do everything. One of their best programs, which um, I sponsored a young kid for, is called their AXO program, where they have um, region, regional competitions in, let's see, I have, have to remember, um, African-American acts of, um, it, it, it's like STEM, it, it, it's, it's technology, it's entrepreneurship, it's music and um, education, um, entertainment, um, and then they have all these different competitions. And then in, in the national NAACP conference every year, they have the finalists. Um, and they present and then they, they award um, scholarships, which is a great program. Fortunately, they haven't been, I, I guess they may have done some of it virtually, but they haven't been able to do it live. But when you see it live, it, it's phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. Um, so that's really what has to happen is, is, again, giving kids access where they didn't have access before. Mm. And, and We've seen a lot of changes, you know, but, but my neighbors are, my, my whole, entire neighborhood 
is, is integrated. I, I have an African-American to my north, to my south, across the street. I have dinner with them. I play golf with them. They come over to my house. I go over to their house. We're involved. And, and when we first moved into the neighborhood, um, we, we, we had these um, block parties. And when it was a smaller neighborhood, um, everybody was to bring a, a, a um, for the black party, um, a cuisine of their culture. Mm, and cool. my mother-in-law was, 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 was alive. She, she would make um, cottage pie and, and stuff like that. So that would be one of the entrees. And, and there'd be barbecue and there'd be Korean and, and, and kimchi. And, um, and we have Chinese and-, and, and You can be hungry. I know, <laughs> like it's it's <laughs> um, spread of all these different cultures and all these things that you've absolutely never tasted before, only because you didn't have access to it. Sure. Yeah. So when you have access, you say, "Well, this is pretty good. Maybe, maybe I should be going and finding a restaurant like that." Yeah. So that's what's changed. You you, you you've got to you've got to put yourself out and be involved. Yeah. And if you're not involved, it's lip service. Well, thank you for your involvement. And we have five really fun questions to ask you to end this with. Um, How many dogs do I have? <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. Um, so these are, you know, kind of try and keep your sentence to like, uh, your answer rather to like one sentence or less um, on these. Sometimes they'll just be yes or no's. So nothing too crazy. Uh, all right, McDonald's or In-N-Out French fries? That's uh, a tough one. I, <laughs> I, I, I don't eat McDonald's and I've only been in In-N-Out once in my life. Look at Matt's face. <laughs> and, I'll tell you, and I'll tell you where it was. Um, all of our dogs are rescued. So we rescued this Dandy Dimon Terrier. And we've had two, we have, Two now, we had one before. And when we got him home, he was bumping into walls. And we found that he was blind in both eyes. He had uh, infantile cataracts. And so we had the cataracts fixed. Um, one didn't take, so he's blind in one eye. But we were going to see a specialist in Fremont, California. So we had to drive up there. So on the way up, I said to my wife, I said, well, you know, there's an In-N-Out. We're hungry, we've never been to an In-N-Out. That's the only time I've ever eaten an In-N-Out. So I'm not you're a, a better man than me, Lou. <laughs> I get on the freeway and I drive by one of those things and my windows are down and I just smell the double double and I, I'm weak. I'm a weak, weak not a, man. Not an expert on in and out fries. <laughs> and I think the last time I had a McDonald's must have been 10 years ago. <laughs> oh man. All right, Matt, you're up. This one, this the the sports one we were talking about. Oh yeah. I mean, I'm kind of like. I grew up listening to Vince Scully and the Dodgers. And so my question is twofold. I, I guess, you know, in, in LA, it's, it's, you know, angels or Dodgers. And then, and then from a football standpoint, how many teams is California going to have? We've got the chargers. We've got now the Raiders are in, in Nevada. You've got all this stuff going on. So where, where do your allegiances fall in regards to baseball and football? Well, let's throw in NBA also. Okay. Not- that too. I'm an underdog guy, okay? He's a so, Clipper fan. I'm a Clipper fan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a Chargers fan. Um, 
and I'm a Yankees fan. You grew up with Vin Scully. I grew up with Red Barber. Yeah, 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 yeah. Generations. No, it's, <laughs> no, it's the same thing. It's like I all my childhood memories with my dad or with my grandpa and listening to Vin Scully. And, and, and when I grew up, because I grew up in New York, I was a Giants fan. So we went to the Polo Grounds instead of the stadium. Yeah. But, uh, I've switched allegiance to the Yankees because the Giants are in San Francisco. <laughs> as long as you're not a Giants fan, that's all I care about. <laughs> I'm going to take some heat for that. I, I was a, a diehard Giant fan. In fact, I remember watching television when Bobby Thompson hit the home run. Crazy. And Crazy. 1952, I think, or something like that. That's how my memory is with Kurt Gibson. Yeah. When Kurt Gibson hit the homer against the A's, that yeah. same same thing. Yeah, yeah. I was at that game. What? <laughs> That's, you know, what's crazy is I've been at some great games and stuff like that, but that memory for yeah. every kid my age that grew up in this area, it was Kurt Gibson, man. It was just... That's what it was. I was in the Bob Uka seat. <laughs> That's amazing. I was at that game. Amazing. All right, poker or blackjack? Blackjack. And then what is your favorite movie of all time and why? Humphrey Bogart, Catherine Hepburn. Free Bogart, you said, what'd you say? Humphrey Bogart and Catherine Hepburn, African Queen. I've never Why? seen that. I'm gonna write that down. Why? Um, it's adventure. It's never give up. It's a love story. It's got everything. I love that. Um, Matt, uh, I think we just had one of the best conversations we've ever had. No. Um, oh dear. That's like people saying, Lou, you're a legend. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime Mental anybody, note, don't call Lou a legend. Anytime anybody says that, I think I'm dead. <laughs> Hashtag Lou the legend. I get that. Lou, thank you so much for spending some time, man. And uh, again, from the prior conversation to this one, it's just been, uh, it's great to spend some time with you. Well, thank, thank you for the opportunity. And, and, and Courtney, you know, I hope we can continue this. Let's do it. Awesome. Thanks, you guys. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye now. Bye.